Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I have the honor and pleasure to welcome Alex Budak to the show today. He co-founded Start Some Good, a platform that helps break down barriers that prevent people from enacting change, which has helped over 1,000 change makers in 50 countries raise over $12 million to catalyze new projects. He's also a lecturer at UC Berkeley, where he teaches a class he created called Becoming a Changemaker. The course is the first of its kind, providing experiential teaching that ignites the inner change maker of students, leaders, and executives from around the world. His first book is titled, no surprise, Becoming a Changemaker, recently released, which we'll be discussing today. So thank you, Alex, for joining us on the What's Next podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Tiffany. Well, listen, we're going to get started right into something I call bullish and bearish. Uh, nothing too painful. Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Um, are you ready? Let's go. All right. The first one, bullish or bearish, breakfast for dinner. Bullish as can be. <laughs> I agree. I'm so in with you on that. All right. The next one, colonizing the moon, bullish or bearish? Oh, reluctantly bullish. Oh, wonder if it'll happen. Something will happen again on the moon in our lifetime. I, I heard Snoopy is up there right now going around the moon uh, in, in the new rocket. So maybe he'll find out something new. All right. And then the third one. Are you ready? Ready. Robot Basketball League. Oh, bearish. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, keep, keep, keep it to humans. All right. Well, I know you uh, you coach uh, kids' basketball teams, so thought I'd do that. And I know you love breakfast for dinner, so thought I'd try to make it a little more personal. Um, but thanks for playing along. I appreciate that. Fun way to start. All right. So let's dig right in because I think because the book is called Becoming a Changemaker, let's start grounding in how do you define changemaker? And then maybe we can lean into how do you start to reorient that mindset to become one? Yeah, I bring a radically inclusive lens to the way I think about change making. As you mentioned in your intro, I'm a social entrepreneur, which is, of course, one amazing way to lead a change. But I also realize that not all of us can nor should be social entrepreneurs. And the longer I've gone into my career, I've realized that change actually calls for all of us, not the lucky few, but the essential many. And so as I started thinking about how can we conceptualize change and this identity that can meet people where they are, I define it quite inclusively. So my definition is simply a change maker leads positive change from wherever they are. And so you'll see in that definition that there's no mention of roles or of titles. I believe that a product manager has just as much claim to that title as a Nobel Prize winner. And it's also an inclusive identity we can layer on top of our existing identities. So we can be a change maker manager, a change maker technologist, a change maker database specialist. We can be change makers in any of our walks of life. And it's a way of seeing the world in our role and shaping it. I, I think that's so fantastic. You know, I, I love the inclusivity of it. I love the empowerment of making it be an individual contributor all the way to the top. And I think so much change coming from the bottom up. Um, lately, which has been really impactful change. Have you seen that over over time, how we've moved from change top down to, to bottom up? 
Oh, absolutely. It's a trend we're seeing in all walks of life. So we're seeing it in the political realm, we're seeing it in the business realm, the social movement realm. Um, and that's really a trend that is changing the way that we think about change. And so I think it's so important that we as individuals stop thinking that, okay, before I can lead change, I've got to be at the very top of my organization. But how different the world looks when you say, no, I just can give myself that permission and I can lead it through with others. Well, there's a great quote by Ginny Rometty, the former CEO of IBM, um, and she says, growth and comfort never coexist. Mm. It's the shorter of a longer quote. Uh, but what I love about that is it's really talking about change and that discomfort that comes with change and that it's relatively hard most of the time, right? I mean, if it's a simple change, it's sort of like, of course, that's easy. It's kind of that hard change that requires um thoughtfulness, potentially planning, I'm guessing, right? So I'd love to know why people, why you found through the research as well as, you know, all the executives you've spoken with around the world, why they tend to resist change so much. And then what is that breakthrough that gets them kind of across that chasm to, to embrace it more? Yeah, well, I will, rather than saying it myself, I'll quote people much smarter than I am. So the researchers, the behavioral economists, Samuelson and Zeckhauser, they're the ones that coined the term status quo bias. It's probably something that you've heard yourself. And it's based on empirical research, which shows that people tend to overvalue what they already have, even when the alternative is better. They found that people, the longer you've had something, the more likely you are to retain it. So that means that each of us, when we try to lead change, we're going up against a real bias. We're going up against people that are saying, well, you know, maybe we just keep things the way that they are, you know, is the quote that you framed us up with. This idea of comfort can sometimes be more powerful than the growth edge. So we tend to like the way that things are, even when they're not perfect. So we as change makers need to find ways that we can start disrupting that. And in my research, I found that there's a couple of key things. So one of the key traits that change makers have across roles, across sectors, is a sense of curiosity. I'm the proud dad of an almost two-year-old. And I love the curiosity that I think we naturally have as kids, you know, trying to figure out the world, asking why. And that's a skill that we often lose over time. We start kind of accepting the way that things are. But I think that change makers are always willing to question things. You know, I'm inspired by the words of poet Amanda Gorman. She wrote the poem, The Hill We Climb, which she presented at the inauguration of Biden and Harris. And the final three lines, I think, are a beautiful embodiment of what it means to be a change maker. She says, but there is always light if we're brave enough to see it and we're brave enough to be it. But there is always light. It's the idea that tomorrow can always be better than today. Even when things are okay, there's always ways it can be better. And certainly in the face of challenges and troubles and struggles, then there is a path forward. There's always light. If only we're brave enough to see it. Now, here's where some of that curiosity comes in. It's being willing to see things that others may not see yet being willing to identify a status quo that needs to be disrupted or a system that's unjust and needs to be changed. And that third part, here's where we go back to the idea of growth versus comfort. If only we're brave enough to be it, we've got to have the courage to step up. Now, as change makers, we likely won't know exactly what to do in the moment. And even if we start, our plans will change as we go. But can you have that courage to take that first step to say, I've got an idea for change. Let me go forward with it. Well, and I, I, I love what you said about curiosity because I, I agree. I feel like when we were kids, it was okay to try stuff, fall down, fail. I mean, someone might laugh, tease you a little bit, but you kind of moved on, right? Dusted yourself off and just moved on. But as you become adults or it becomes, I don't know, is it high stakes? Is it, is it 
you know, not feeling uh, safe, right, in the failure or in the trying or in the curiosity. Um, because I, I feel like when, when people have that curiosity and ask questions and challenge the status quo, if you will, sometimes people don't take that challenge very well. So then it becomes this art of, okay, how do I challenge the status quo? How do I push for change? I'm an individual contributor, right? I'm at the bottom of the, of the rung. Who's going to listen to me? And so it's a big risk. I don't know. Am I overthinking that? No. And again, social science bears it out. So here I'll bring in a social psychologist. So this is Edwin Hollander. He came up with a term called idiosyncrasy credits. And if I put it in my own words, it's how do you lead change without being really annoying? Right. So he says, look, if you're someone who goes in and you're always questioning the status quo on literally everything from like, what color should our curtains be to like, who should we host at this dinner? Like, it's going to become annoying. And so he says, look, there's two ways to earn these idiosyncrasy credits, which are defined as positively disposed impressions to deviate from group norms, kind of the ability to go your own way. So there's two ways to earn them. One is through competence. So by showing up and doing good work, if you show up on your first day of work and you already want to change 10 things, no one's going to trust you because they won't know that you have the organization's best interest at heart. So the first, do good work, be competent. Then the second is to go along with the flow on some things, right? So there's 10 things you want to change, but maybe there's only one or two you really care about. Maybe you're really passionate about climate justice. And so you really stand up on changes related to that. But then on other things like, you know, who should the caterer be for our next event? You go with the flow on that. And that helps us understand, you know, to put it in kind of colloquial terms, how to pick our battles. But it's a nice framework, I think, to think about for how we know when and how to question the status quo. And that I, I'm guessing that's that change maker mindset you're, you discuss in the book. Yeah, it's a big part of it. It's our ability to see the world and our role in shaping it. And, you know, going back to the idea you talked about with failure, I think that's so crucial to being an effective change maker. Now, as you mentioned, I teach at, at UC Berkeley, where I'm teaching a lot of high achieving students who have mostly gotten into the classroom by doing things the quote right way, good grades, good SATs, good extracurriculars. So we spend an entire lecture in my class talking about failure and it's uncomfortable for them. We do some case studies about failure. We look at some research, some data, some empirical frameworks. And then towards the end of class, I give them one slide, which simply says, go fail. <laughs> and students start kind of looking around like, what's, what's going on here? And I go, yeah, I'm serious. The next slide comes up and I say, okay, you have 15 minutes and you have to go leave the classroom. And you cannot come back to the classroom until you've asked for something and been rejected. You have to get a complete stranger to say no to you. And I see these students and they start turning red, they start sweating, they tell me their hearts are beating faster, they're so nervous. And so, you know, it's a class and they shuffle out of the classroom. And meanwhile, by the way, of course, I stay at the front and say, hey, if you need a little help, a little coaching, I'll be here, I'll support you, I'll help you come up with ideas. You know, you're not on your own, safe but uncomfortable. But then they shuffle out and then when they come back 15 minutes later, the energy in the classroom is just off the charts. So much so that I once had a professor next door come over and ask to keep the noise down because students are just so lit up from this experience. And when they do it, each semester, one of two things happens. So for about one third of students, they go out there, they ask for something, they're sure they'll get rejected, and they actually get a yes. Uh-oh. <laughs> I think about the woman who went to the cafe downstairs and she went up to the barista and said, hi, um, could I have a free orange juice? And he said, yeah, okay. And she went, uh, okay, um, could I have two? I said, yeah, okay. Uh, three? No, thankfully he cut her off at three. But she still had two orange juices and she came back to the classroom with orange juice for us. And I think the lesson there is that sometimes our first failure is that we don't even put ourselves out there. 
we're so sure we'll be rejected that we don't ask for something when maybe we would have gotten it if we had actually just asked for it. And then for the other about two thirds of students, they ask for something, they get the rejection they're expecting. But rather than coming back dejected, they actually come back with a spring in their step, with this energy, with this newfound confidence. They're proud of themselves for putting something out there. And they realize, well, okay, no one laughed at me. No one made fun of me. Um, it wasn't, failure wasn't fatal. And they came back saying, well, hey, if I could ask for the silly thing that I didn't even want in the first place, imagine what I could do when I really, truly want something and really make that powerful ask. Yeah, and I would say that asking is this superpower that not everybody takes advantage of. You know, early in my career, I went up to people I quote unquote kind of aspired to be or wanted to learn from, or you know, I admired their career from afar. I wanted to hear from them. Could I have five minutes, ten minutes? Could we sit, have a cup of coffee, whatever it was? You know, and and probably a th maybe twenty percent of the time I'd get a no. Seventy, seventy-five percent of the time I'd get a yes. Yeah. But then if I got the yes, then it's like, oh no, like what am I going to ask? <laughs> It's kind of like the orange juice, right? It's like, uh-oh, I got one. Now, <laughs> now what, right? Um, but there is such a huge power in asking. Um, and sometimes it's it's fear, but sometimes, sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's confidence. But to your point, the worst that could happen is you learn something. Maybe it wasn't the right way you asked, or maybe it was the person that you asked, or the, you know, the manner in which you asked, or whatever it might be, right? I mean, there's always a lesson. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things we talk about in class is the idea of protecting your downside risk. So don't just take any risk that's wild, but think before you act, you know, what's the worst that could happen? What's the worst case scenario? And in the case of you telling someone whom you admire, you know, saying, hey, could I have five minutes with you? The absolute worst thing that happens is that you make their day. They, they hear from someone and they say, wow, someone appreciates what I do. That's amazing. That's literally the worst thing that, that happens. No one would be mad at you for saying nice things about them. And the best, there's lots of upside there. But I'm inspired by the work done by some Italian researchers. This is fascinating to me. One of my favorite studies that came out in the last couple of years. So they looked at startups who are part of an accelerator program in Italy. And they had only one intervention. The only intervention, they took half of them and they taught them the scientific method. So taught them this idea of hypothesis testing. And the other half just went on as normal. And what they found is that the group that had learned the scientific method they were more likely to pivot, so make kind of strategic changes in direction, and also generated much higher revenue. So why is that? It's because think about being a scientist in a lab. If you're a scientist and you're, I don't know, titrating chemicals, and it doesn't work out the way you expect, you don't tell yourself, oh, I'm a terrible scientist. What a failure. What a mistake I made. No, you just go into it with curiosity. You just say, hey, I wonder what would happen if I do this. You have a hypothesis. And I think when we extrapolate out that when we take chances put ourselves out there in your case, you know, asking someone for help, we tend to say, well, if someone doesn't get back to me, it's a fatal flaw. You know, what a terrible person I am. I made a mistake, but no, it's often just hypothesis testing. And if you lean into your curiosity, well, then to use your study again, you say, well, okay, maybe that email that I wrote was too long. Busy people aren't going to read a five paragraph email. Let me try a three paragraph email. Or maybe you sent it on a weekend and you find it's better to write it on a Monday. Who knows? But when you iterate and you test and you take that sting out of failure, allows us to be much more curious and not take our failures personally. Well, you know, within there, I feel like lately, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, you know, I'm getting these more AI generated reach outs, asks, <laughs> right? Um, 
like it's someone trying to be a change maker a little bit, I guess, right? Trying to push the envelope, challenge the status quo, ask me something. And so it's something like, I, you know, I'm not going to ever reach out to you again. This is the last chance. Like, please, da, 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 right? And, or, you know, am I bothering you? Is it too much? Are the emails too long? Right? <laughs> These really bad, bad, bad reach outs. And sometimes it's on like something like a LinkedIn. Sometimes it is a direct email. Um, but I feel like uh, some people are relying on technology to take away that uncomfortableness, right? And the fear of trying to write something. Um, and then they, then it's worse. Oh, I'm, I'm with you, Tiffany. I personally, I love LinkedIn, but actually got a message just this morning, which said, uh, dear Alex, I see that we share bracket common interest. And so I wanted to follow up with you. They didn't even fill in what that common interest was, right? So it's totally an AI <laughs> script. And what I was thinking there is, yeah, that's someone who just doesn't want to deal with that sense of failure. And, you know, they probably sent out a thousand of those messages. I just hope they get a couple of responses. But there's a human element in this as well. In my class, I teach a lot about empathy. And I think if you're willing to put yourself out there, and instead of just writing this generic email, like some of those that you quoted, but instead you take a few minutes up front, you actually try to get to know the person. You know, it feels more vulnerable when you make that ask. Because instead of just being rejected for a bot you send, it'll feel like maybe a rejection of yourself. But when you actually put time into it, when you think, well, how would this person want to receive this note? It increases your odds of being selected quite a bit. Now, the upside is higher. The downside is maybe a little bit more personal, but I think that's a risk worth taking. And I think as business leaders, there's an opportunity for us to bring a little bit more humanity into our work. So what would you recommend to people? You know, let, let's say, you know, um, somebody listening and they go, I think of myself as a change maker or I want my company or my manager or my team to think of me as a change maker. What are those first one or two or three steps, you know, somebody can make to sort of kind of try to find that superpower, I guess? Yeah, one of the core concepts that I teach and, and I write about is this new concept I call micro-leadership. So, so often when we talk about leadership, we tell it through the lens of the single heroic leader. So we talk about someone like Lequileza scaling the fence, or we think about Steve Jobs, pulling the iPhone out of his pocket for the first time. And to be clear, there's a role for this type of heroic, courageous leadership. But I think when we talk about it in that way, it can feel really exclusive because we look at them and say, well, I'm not naturally an extrovert or you know, I don't have that natural charisma. Does that mean I can't be a leader? But I think absolutely not. I think that leaders might be scarce, but I think leadership is abundant. Leadership as an act, not a title. And so micro-leadership breaks leadership down into its smallest, most meaningful unit, which I simply call a leadership moment. If you think about it, these leadership moments appear before us dozens of times per day. It might be in a meeting, you notice one of your colleagues has been kind of quiet and you say, hey, you know, no pressure, uh, but if you'd like to share your voice, we'd love to hear what you have to say. Or maybe it's when everyone else is saying no, you're willing to say yes. Or maybe it's being willing to stay late to help a colleague clean up after their first event. Right? There's all these tiny little leadership moments. They appear before us so many times per day. And so one of the keys to being a change maker is to stop waiting for permission. Don't wait for someone else to anoint you a leader. Instead, seize these leadership moments. Micro-leadership is rooted in service. It's rooted in small ways to help others out. But what's beautiful about micro-leadership is you'll never go too far. Even if you're an entry-level um, employee, and you don't have any formal authority, you have no direct reports, doesn't mean you can't practice leadership. Seize those leadership moments. You'll never go too far in one or two small moments per day. 
But when you start adding them up and you start looking back, you realize, well, I've been practicing leadership for the last month. And then people start realizing that you are a leader. And most importantly, you yourself recognize that you're a leader. So that's my first challenge and my first opportunity to you is to recognize those leadership moments, practice micro-leadership and to seize them every day. So maybe give an example of a micro-leadership moment. Yeah, so it's um, in a meeting where the strategy feels a little bit off to you and you're kind of looking around and being like, well, everyone seems to think this is right, but like, it doesn't feel right to me. It's being willing to stand up and go, you know what? Let me put myself out there and say, this doesn't feel quite right, here's why. Um, or maybe it's, you know, you're a, a manager and you have a colleague who's running into an issue with one of your colleagues. Instead of telling them, oh, go figure it out. You say, no, let's figure it out. How can I help you with this? Or maybe you step up, you send an email that uh, helps to, to smooth things over. Um, these are small little moments on the non-problem solving side, but the more sort of positive side. You know, maybe it's taking a minute to say, hey, you two people should really know each other. Let me send an intro if you guys are interested and just connect from here. Little moments where a small little act can catalyze much bigger change. Well, and I think that's where people get a little bit stuck, right? They think it's this big mammoth um, behavior change or behavior shift. And you were sort of saying that earlier, right? It's these little micro moments that you do change. And then over time, over a month or a year or two, you really start to notice, you know, a different sen sense of confidence in the person, right? Um, trusting in the fact that those around them will not, you know, laugh or whatever, you know, whatever you might be afraid of. Um, and, and I also think that this to leaders um, who are leaders and potentially have people on their team who are, you know, flexing this change maker muscle, if you will, um, uh, have to start to track those little failures as well. Like, so in a meeting, maybe say on Monday morning, okay, you know, I'm going to go around the room. Everyone has to share one thing they failed at this week. Right. Because then it's like it's not some taboo conversation that, oh, I don't want to share what I did that failed or, you know, whatever it might be. And so I think there's a place for leaders to allow team members to breathe. Right. And try this change maker. So if a leader's listening to that, what can what can they do listening to this? What can they do? I love that example. It's straight out of what Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School talks about with psychological safety. And as a leader, can you model your own failability? That we so often think as a leader, we have to have every single answer. But in truth, we know that you don't. And so rather than trying to put up this facade that you have all the answers, say, look, I'm not sure. This is what I think. What do you think about this? Or help me poke holes in this. You at the top can model that failability. And I love your um, weekly question. I think there's something really powerful about creating a ritual. And so if every single week you ask people, um, I would like the question, how did you fail? And what did you learn from it? Which encourages that learning mindset as well. And when you do, you'll find that a couple of things happen. Well, one, you make the culture safe for people to fail because it's not just one person failing or putting themselves out there. It's that each of us is going to fail. And in leading change, you will inevitably fail. And then more importantly, as a leader, you also start seeing, you know, if someone comes to meeting week after week, and doesn't really have a good failure or has the same failure over and over, that might be a sign they're not pushing themselves enough or not putting themselves out there enough. And that's a great catalyst for a conversation to say, you know, I'd like to see you making some bigger bets to fail even bolder. And how can I support you in that? Uh, it gives you some intelligence into how your team is appreciating change and how you can best support them. So maybe we can, you know, end this uh, amazing conversation with a example of, of, 
where you've had the opportunity to maybe go into a small or a medium or enterprise business and work with leaders or a team where they were very resistant to change. They were sort of stuck in that fixed mindset, status quo, not the way we do it here, adverse to change, thinking the same thing that worked for them, you know, pre pre pandemic is going to work for them now. And so much has changed like that, you know, the normal conversation that we all hear all the time. And, and you sort of walk in and you immediately assess that's, that's the culture, right? That's the environment. Maybe give an example. You don't have to give the name unless you want to, right? But of where, um, what what happened, how it worked, and what the what the result was. Yeah, thanks. So recently worked with a mortgage insurance company, which when you think change maker companies, you probably don't think mortgage insurance. But that's why this was such a fun project to work on. And so among the challenges they came to me with was that they had almost no turnover in their staff. And you might say, well, that seems like a really good problem to have. But no, actually what happened is that people were getting kind of complacent, that there was not a lot of dynamism, that people were just kind of going through the motions. There was a lot of status quo. And so we began by following the blueprint of the book, with focusing on change maker mindset, with getting people comfortable with curiosity, with resilience, with empathy, getting to know each other, some exercises around putting ourselves out there. And this shift from sort of siloed organizations where certain people had a very traditional view of leadership, where it's like, you know, this person communicates out to this person and so on and so on. We started to change some, some norms. Um, there's a concept I love called norm entrepreneurship. So I'm a big believer in catalyzing change through culture. And in norm entrepreneurship, it teaches us that we can lead culture from wherever we are. Just like any of us can be a business entrepreneur, each of us can be a norm entrepreneur and start and scale culture. And so we created a norm, which was that each of us at the company could lead culture from where we are. It meant that they were free to suggest a little piece of culture. And so it started in small ways. So things like, hey, before we start a Zoom meeting, let's just take five minutes to just check in and see how people are doing. You know, go back to that humanity. That's a norm that someone wanted to start and it took hold. Uh, but also we had a number of people that fought for equal pay because they found that, well, there's pay discrepancy and that became norm entrepreneurship through a more formal lens. But it became a combination of really empowering people more on the front lines to feel like they have a voice then also encouraging those in the more traditional leadership positions to realize that the top-down model just doesn't work anymore. You could hope that it does, but the last few years of financial and other res results just show that they don't in helping them see that very slowly they can start trusting those around them. We used a concept from Morton Hansen, which in Hermione Ibarra called loosening control without losing control. And so that's what many of the higher ups were worried about. We found ways that they could start trusting, start listening to their team a little bit more, practicing that micro leadership and give them small steps and then collaboratively led to quite a bit of change. Well, you know, I, I think that one of the biggest misconceptions, maybe not it's a misconception, I don't know, maybe it's only in my mind that I think it is, but, you know, I can only speak about myself, but, you know, I started out as an individual contributing sales rep and kind of moved my way up, right? But every time I quote unquote moved my way up, there wasn't like some formal training curriculum. Okay, this is what is expected. You know, you're gonna have a mentor, or you're you know you could take a class, or you know you could do what you know. Let go take Alex's class, like whatever it was, right? But whatever it is, um, and all of a sudden, right, I reached that Peter principle of sort of like the love. I hit the level of my incompetence, which was fairly quick. But <laughs> th then I had to kind of find my own way. But I learned very quickly as well that leaders above me didn't necessarily know how to help me be a better leader. Um, and so, you know, that means you've got this mid-level manager who 
kind of doesn't know what he or she is doing and that affects downstream, you know, and then it also affects the ability for that team downstream to get anything done upstream. And it's this ineffective manager. And I know, you know, this statement, right? People don't leave companies, they leave managers. And so today, if man, if a manager is listening to this and they're like, yeah, I, I definitely have hit the level of my incompetence and I don't know how to foster this change making environment or culture. Um, because I was never taught outside yeah. of obviously reading your book, um, becoming a change maker. Besides that, what, what would you recommend that they do? The simplest and most powerful hack, hack is get good at asking questions. When we step into these leadership positions, especially if we're now managing, let's say, a completely different group we're not part of. So we're now managing HR and operations. We have no idea how they work. Get good at asking questions. Um, you don't have to have all the answers, but can you ask good questions? And again, lean into your curiosity. If you honestly don't understand something, ask that, figure it out. And then once you start asking good questions, you'll be able to start seeing things like, well, tell me how does this connect to this? Ask yourself your own question, which would be, what would my replacement do? Sometimes we get so bogged down in who we are, our own personality quirks. We say, well, let's step out on the balcony. What would someone else do if they were in my shoes? Ask really powerful questions. Ask a lot of questions. You actually come off as a much better leader when you do. People love to talk about themselves and their own work. And the more you ask good questions, the more you'll start seeing some connections across and through the fields that you manage. Well, so I, I uh, had a great interview on, on one of my previous podcasts uh, with Mark Vic Victor Hansen. He wrote the book, Chicken Soup for the Soul. And he says, become a master asker. Mm -hmm. So I completely stole and borrowed that term from him. Um, and he wrote a book called Ask. So if you want to become a better asker of questions, you know, listen to that podcast with Mark Victor Hansen um, or, and or read the book. Um, but becoming a master asker is a incredible skill that will take you a long way. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today on the What's Next podcast. Uh, any parting thoughts and how people can keep in touch with you and your work? Well, Tiffany, thank you for being a master asker. I really appreciate the great questions that you asked and loved our conversation. And yeah, if you're curious to learn more about the book, you can go to changemakerbook.com and we'd be very happy to connect with anyone on LinkedIn. Uh, just don't send me a message saying we have a share of common interest. Figure out that common interest and then let's keep in touch. All right, great. Well, thank you so much, Alex. Thank you all for joining us on this episode of the What's Next podcast. Look forward to you joining me again next time.